Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our worship here today in Belhelvy Church. And today is a special day because we're going to be celebrating uh, communion together. And I hope that you've been able to get yourself organised for that this morning. But we're going to begin our service today in the words of our first hymn, which is Lord for the Years. Let's worship God together. Let's join our hearts together in prayer now. Let us pray. Father God, eternal Son, brooding Spirit, once again we pause before the mystery of your being to draw ourselves not just to stillness, 
but to attentiveness. For like the sky above us or the breath within us, you are always there, even when we fail to notice you. Lord, we don't have any adequate words or pictures to describe the mystery of your being. You're personal and yet everywhere. You're divine and yet you turn up in the humblest and least likely places. You walked in the cool of Eden's garden and sat under the trees with Abraham. You thundered from Mount Sinai and led your people in pillars of cloud and fire. You entered Solomon's temple with breathtaking glory and allowed yourself to be bound up, made helpless and set gently into a bed of straw. And you promise to one day dwell with us, taking us as your people and being our God putting an end to crying and suffering and pain because the old order of things will have passed away. Whether temple or stable, heaven's heights or earth's murky depths, the place where you are is blessed, Lord. And today we have this hope, the promise of your indwelling spirit given to all who believe, the promise that as you made the stable and the cross and even the grave holy by your presence there, so too you can make our lives holy when you come to dwell within us. So come today, be born in empty hearts, rekindle the fire in those that have grown cold, restore those disfigured by sin and by sorrow, Encourage those grown tired in service. We wait before you this morning, gracious Father, needing your forgiveness and encouragement, your peace and your presence. Some of us are stuck in the past and unable to move on. Some of us are tired of hiding how we really are from other people. Some of us know that in our heart of hearts, we are still determined to keep you at arm's length. Loving Spirit, accept us, transform us, change us and challenge us by your grace to grow into the people you have called us to be. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we make all our prayers. Amen. Our reading this morning is taken from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, reading verses 31 to 39, and I'm reading from the Message translation of the Bible. So what do you think, says Paul, with God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, 
embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son. Is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks, they pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. Amen. In almost 20 years of ministry, I have yet to have to take time off my work because of stress or depression. But there have been a couple of times when I've come pretty close to it. Years ago, when I was working in Glasgow, I reached a place where I had just about had enough of things. It was a challenging job working across three inner city parishes and getting immersed in those communities. But three years in, I was feeling overwhelmed, overworked and overtired. Somewhere in the middle of it all, all the challenges I was facing, I had lost heart for the job. But I was still having to go through the motions day after day and week after week. I felt like one of those shiny helium balloons that you get for people's birthdays two weeks after the party. You're still there, but you're deflated and barely able to lift yourself off the ground. I tried talking to a colleague about it, but much as I liked him, he did what he usually did, which was to talk a lot and not listen very much. But a friend recommended someone else to speak to. His name was Martin another minister working in the inner city, and I'll always remember the couple of hours that he spent with me in our kitchen one evening. It was such a healing time. And I can't remember what we spoke about. I just remember the way he made me feel. He listened with understanding. He asked good questions. He made me feel like my story mattered and should be heard. He didn't offer quick fixes, but he entered into my churned up world and he sat with me there until I could begin to see a glimmer of light within it. Somehow in the way that Martin was with me, I came out of that time knowing 
that I'd been heard and valued, and knowing that though my troubles were real, they weren't everything. Martin created a space for me that night where I began to believe that despite what was happening, things could actually be okay again. And I still remember his kindness 20 years later. As somebody once said, people may not remember exactly what you did or what you said, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And I wanted to start with that story this morning because I think it contains the essence of what I want to say to you today as we draw this discussion about the problem of evil to a close. Because the answer to the problem may not be the kind of answer you're expecting. A proposition or a convincing argument or some kind of solution. Instead, I've come to believe both theologically and experientially that the answer to the problem of evil is relational. It's relational. And we're going to begin to unpack that a wee bit this morning. Last week, we looked at the idea that God, as first cause, has consented to allow natural law and human freedom to play out in the world. Most of the time, he seems to let things go their own way without too much involvement. But if that's all he does, then we're stuck with the God of deism, a God who winds up the universe and then steps back and leaves it to its own devices. And that's not the God we meet in the Bible. Our God participates in his creation. And that's the third factor we need to bring into play in this discussion. On the most basic level, God sustains the cosmos in being. He's not just one more being among many other beings. God is being itself. If God withdrew God's presence for an instant, the cosmos would collapse into nothingness. That's the kind of thinking the Apostle Paul brings to us when he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him we live and move and have our being. We literally couldn't live without him. But that same God goes further. He's not just some kind of invisible force holding the universe together. He's personal. And out of the mists of history, we begin to see him drawing particular men and women into relationship with him. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Leah and Rachel, and in time a chosen family become a chosen people, the people of Israel. A people blessed by God so that they could become a blessing to the world. And the Old Testament is the story of their ongoing relationship with God. And what a tumultuous story it is. This is no passive God remote from humankind. This is a passionate God who expresses love, who gets jealous, whose anger smolders and whose mercy knows no bounds. A God who gets involved. 
And when he doesn't seem to get involved, at least not in the way his people wanted him to, they feel free enough to complain about it. We see that most clearly in the Psalms. Time and time again, the writers pour out their hearts to God. Why did you let this happen? Where were you? Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you get involved? You can hear the pain in their voices. But there always comes this moment at the end. Once the pain and the anger has been vented and the angry sobs have subsided, when the writers draw a deep breath and say, okay, I know you're good, God. I know this isn't the last word. I choose to trust in you. It's a wee bit like my kitchen table meeting with Martin all those years ago. There's something about letting it all out that helps you reconnect with God and begin to trust in his goodness again. Now, the Old Testament has its problems. That's well documented. And this isn't the time to go into them, but it's important to remember that the Old Testament was only ever a partial and a provisional revelation of God. The New Testament book of Hebrews puts it this way. The writer says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so in this scandalous affair called the incarnation, God comes to us in human form. He embraces our condition, as Paul puts it in Romans. He enters our world as one of us to show us the true nature of God and to redeem our fallen nature. And how does he come among us? With the might of empire behind him, summoning armies, riding chargers, hurling thunderbolts and rallying the powerful? No. All along throughout his ministry, despite who he is, he refuses to use his power in that kind of way. His way, the Father's way, is love, not coercion. Persuasion, not force. Revelation, not domination. This is how he chooses to work. And this is how he lives and what he teaches. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus reveals to us something we might miss if we don't read the Old Testament revelation carefully. The patience, 
kindness, goodness, and gentleness of God, which sit alongside his power and influence how he chooses to use it. And how does Jesus use his power? He heals the sick. He feeds the hungry. He raises the dead and he protects his own from harm. He tames nature. But when it comes to it, in Gethsemane, and he could have used his power to summon legions of angels to protect him from what was to come, he said, no, no, it doesn't happen that way. They were trying to take his life from him. But he, in fact, was choosing to lay it down. He was letting us do our worst. As he says in John's gospel, no one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. And so the creator of the universe was led like a lamb to the slaughter because he let it happen. It was love that took him to the cross and it was love that held him there. Why? Because the cross was going to be two things, a definitive revelation and a decisive victory. A definitive revelation that the nature of God is self-offering, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. And a decisive victory over everything that mars the life of God's creation, namely Satan, sin, and death. The Easter story tells us that although there are still battles to be fought against those things and there will be casualties before the end, we know with certainty that the war is already won. We know this because the grave couldn't hold Christ. He is risen and his kingdom will come. At Calvary, God exposed himself to the very worst that we could do to him in his Son. And in his grace, he turned it into the very means of our redemption. And if he would do that for us, despite what we were, then how can we ever lose his love? Nothing can separate us from it, says Paul. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing. Nothing living or dead, angel or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. God's love is certain. And the cross shows us that. 
Now come back with me for a moment to that cross. He's been there now for hours. And summoning what little strength remains, he cries out through cracked lips, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I've spoken before about where those words come from, Psalm 22, and what they mean or may not mean. But for today, let's realize that Jesus isn't only speaking for himself here. He is our representative. He's representing, taking into himself the whole of humanity on the cross in his suffering and death. He's carrying you and me. And he's uttering those words for himself, but also for every human being who's ever wondered where God is in the middle of all of this. Everybody who's wrestled with pain or injustice or powerlessness or abandonment. Everybody who's ever lifted their eyes to the heavens, wondering where on earth God is and why he allows these things to happen. And my guess is, that's most of us. In taking human flesh God in Christ knows the pain of being human, of being vulnerable to what natural law and human freedom can do in this world. And that cry that he makes from the cross is a cry of solidarity with the whole human family. But those are not his last words whatever dereliction he feels in those moments. Because Luke tells us that as he breathed his last, he shouted, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. My God, my God has become my Father. The general cry of humankind in our unknowing and our, in our impotence becomes the personal cry of a son to his father who he knows and loves and trusts. Like the psalmists of old, Jesus comes through the desolation of confusion and pain to a place of resolve and rest, trusting in the character of the Father he loves and trusting him to do right and to bring good even out of the worst that can happen. I read a lot in preparation for today and indeed for this series and there's a lot more that we could have spoken about today, especially the part that prayer has to play in these things and how we participate with God in his work in the world and how the things that we do, our actions, again, mediate God's presence to the world in participation. But as I said way back at the beginning, 
the best answer I have to give to you about the problem of evil today is a relational one. It is all about the trusting relationship that we can have with God through Jesus Christ. The Christ who creates a space to sit with us as we pour out our pain and confusion and anger about the things that happen. The Christ who enters into our churned up world and sits with us there until we can begin to see a glimmer of light in the darkness. The Christ who stays with us until we begin to realize that though our troubles are real, they aren't everything. God alone is ultimate. And we can trust in the final victory of his love. You want an answer to the problem of evil? Here it is. Bread and wine. The body broken and the blood shed. Tokens of God's love to reassure us and sustain us and redeem us in this interim time as we wait and watch and work and pray for his kingdom to come. Amen. We live in strange times, but our God holds all our times in his hands. And though we are scattered this morning, unable to meet together in the flesh, as we gather, the body of Christ is remembered as we celebrate this meal together in our homes. Your table is his table this morning. Your bread is his bread. Your wine is his wine. Your life is hidden in him. Your humanity is healed and restored. He calls you brother, sister, friend. And together we can call God our Father. So let us come near to him in assurance of faith, trusting him to finish the good work that he has begun in us and bearing with us in patient love as we become all that he wants us to be. So let us pray. Father, to look at Christ is to realize what humanity can look like and how far short we fall. Jesus, you were patient, ready to listen, ready to talk. Lord, teach us to be patient. Jesus, you were at home everywhere and with everyone, sure of yourself and sure of your God. Lord, help us to be open to all as best we can in these days. Jesus, you didn't just love humankind in general, but people in particular. 
Lord, help us see the people behind the facades we all wear. Jesus, you were the incarnation of love. You gave yourself and spent yourself for our sake. Lord, help us to live more for others and less for ourselves. Jesus, you preached what you lived and you lived what you preached. Lord, may our living never contradict what we say we believe. Jesus, you carried no grudges. Lord, forgive us and teach us to forgive. Hear us as in a moment of silence we set down what we need to set down before we can come to this time with integrity. Jesus, on the cross you suffered and died for the world. Lord, give us the courage to commit ourselves to following you and taking up whatever cross we are called to bear. Hear us as we remember all those we've been praying for so much over the last few months. Those who are fighting illness, those who are helping them, those in the front line those waiting in the wings, racked with worry. Bless our leaders with good judgment and our people with common sense and selflessness. Keep us patient and understanding with each other as we remain at home and help us not to forget those who are on their own. And as we remember the work of Christian Aid today, thanking you for the generosity of those who've kept supporting them this year and praying for wisdom as they try to discern where those funds are most needed in the year ahead. Lord God, lead us into deeper fellowship even in lockdown that the world might know that you are God and that you are good. So hear us as we pray now in the words that Jesus taught his disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Among friends gathered around a table, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Later on, he took a cup of wine 
And he said, this cup is the new covenant sealed by my blood. Drink from it, all of you, to remember me. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who put their trust in him. Let us pray. God of all those who are scattered and broken, you call us to wholeness. We thank you for the love you showed in giving us your son so that we could be reconciled to you. We thank you that in Christ you enter into the pain, uncertainty and fear of our world and that your arms are open in a loving embrace, gathering us to you as a mother hen gathers her brood under her wing or as a shepherd gathers his flock. We thank you for this bread and wine, symbols and signs for us today of your faithfulness to your people throughout all generations and your pledge to be with us in life, whatever befalls. So hear our prayers and receive our thanks for all that you are to us in Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn is Shout for Joy, The Lord Has Let Us Feast.
And now go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.